little darklings enjoy this interesting throwback freaky friday episode this is an episode of talk is jericho with professional wrestler and musician chris jericho our topic of the day true crime tales throughout we sprinkle strange supernatural true crimes and just some of the most bizarre crimes in history so sit back relax and enjoy talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho, baby. Talk is Jericho. Talk is Jericho, mama. Talk is me. All right, welcome to Talk is Jericho. It's the pot of thunder and rock and roll. And today it's all about true crime tales with Dave Schrader. And he explores real crime stories and cases, uh, some involving the paranormal. Dave's going to share a few of those cases and stories today. Crimes involving the Slenderman, uh, Ouija boards, and ghosts. We'll also talk to Dave about some other famous murder cases, like the West Memphis Three and the Stephen Avery case, which, of course, was featured in the Netflix documentary series, Making a Murder. Dave was actually into the Avery case before the Netflix documentary came out. You'll hear what he thinks and what he discovered in his own interviews with people who were involved in the case. This is it. True Crime Tales right here with Dave Schrader. Let's delve into it. Lock your doors lock your windows and let's check it out now on talk is jericho we talked before about your paranormal kind of uh, interest how did you get in- involved and interested in-, in true crime we just found that there was this kind of weird natural marriage between the paranormal and true crime and we started finding these true crimes that sometimes had a supernatural or paranormal slant to it vampire killers people that thought they were hmm. werewolves occult murders ouija board murders so we started doing those and we found this huge groundswell of popularity my background in this is, is a little bit more on the personal side. I um, have unfortunately had tragedy hit my life on a few occasions. One, uh, you know, my, my first girlfriend in high school, uh, Debbie Evans, real sweet girl, very nice. She had very strict parents, very religious upbringing, so she wasn't a, a officially allowed to have a boyfriend, but we were definitely hand-holding in the halls and a quick peck at the end of the day, boyfriend and girlfriend for a while, and uh, stayed friends for a number of years. And in 1988, I was arriving or waiting for the arrival of my firstborn son and she was waiting for the arrival of her firstborn son and we struck up a friendship again and uh, it had been quite a few years i think about five six years since we had dated and just just friendship we we started hanging out and talking and i'd help her out she was living kind of in squalor and and didn't have a whole lot so we'd go out and get things for her apartment to help set her up and get her life on the the clean path the father of her son was kind of an abusive guy. So she had asked me, would you be willing to um, possibly put your name on the birth certificate as the father so that this guy can't take him away from me in the future and, and do this. And, you know, I was going off of what I knew at the time and, you know, I just being her friend, I said, sure, that's fine. Put me down as the dad so that nobody can take him away from you. And that was the last I heard of it. Uh, we talked about names and I helped her name her son. And all these years later, 
I'm at home and, uh, we, you know, I'd gone to college, Winona state. She'd been in contact with me and had reached out a few times. She was, you know, Hey Dave, what do you, it sounds like Winona's great. Should I move there? Should I reboot my life and kick over there? And I said, well, you know, it certainly, I mean, it's a change from Chicago to, to Winona, but yeah, I, this wouldn't be a bad place to go, but we never really took it past just the initial kicking it around stage. And, uh, we weren't looking to couple up or become a, a thing, but just in that keeping friends and trying to get her out of the situation she was in. And I'd gone home to visit once uh, in Illinois and went over to visit her at her apartment and met her boyfriend at the time, Laverne Ward. Something at that time, Chris, I got to tell you, and I know it's easy to be the armchair quarterback on Monday morning and, and know all the problems, but something set off my spidey sense when I met Laverne. Mm-hmm. And I couldn't put my finger on it. And it wasn't, I mean, he was a, a very large black man, but it wasn't a racial thing to me because, you know, I knew that she had dated uh, African-American men for a while. And that that's not a big deal, not a part of my world that's problem. But there was just something off with this guy and I couldn't put my finger on it. Well, a few years later, my mom calls me and it's November and she says, Dave, you used to date Debbie Evans, right? I said, yeah. And she said, um, I got some bad news for you. She's been murdered. And I, hmm. I shook my head. I'm like, no, no, not Deb. She goes, yeah, and I guess they, you know, they murdered her daughter, and they're looking for oh her son. What? Yeah, and I, and the story hadn't even completely unfolded at that point. So I started trying to read the news online, anything I could get to figure out what was going on. And this was kind of at the the beginning of internet information. So I was digging up anything I could find on her and and what was going on. They started covering it on the news in Minnesota, where I was living at the time. So that's where I was unfortunately getting some of this information. And then the true gruesome nature of this story unfolded. And, you know, this story is not for the faint of heart. So if you have listeners that maybe are a little sensitive, this might be the part you tune down for a few minutes and then come back. But what had happened was Debbie uh, had been dating Laverne Ward for quite a while. They had a child together and she was pregnant with their second child, but they had broken up during the pregnancy. But she was remaining friendly with Laverne. And um, Laverne's cousin and uh, girlfriend, I, I think it was girlfriend, I can't remember if his cousin was the girl or, or the guy in this, Fidel Caffey and Annette Williams. They were related to Laverne Ward, and they wanted a light-skinned baby. And Annette had been fixed, so she couldn't have a child anymore. So they concocted this idea, and she began faking a pregnancy right along the same timeline as Debbie telling everybody she was pregnant, getting ready for this pregnancy, getting ready to have a baby. And a week before Debbie was due, they went to the apartment to visit, as they often did, to see her other son or their other son and, and hang out. And um, some point during the night, they shot Debbie in the head. And then Annette Williams removed the baby from Debbie's womb. Oh, my gosh. Then they went into the bedroom and uh, stabbed her daughter, Samantha, what? To death. Now, Joshua, Ryan, her, her little boy, had hidden in the closet when he heard all of the things going on. They left the apartment and left Laverne Ward's other child sitting there in a pool of his mother's blood. Oh they just left him, and they walked out of the building carrying the newborn. Josh saw his chance and made a break for it and ran out the back door and unfortunately ran right around the building right into them. So they grabbed him before killing him and dumping him in a dumpster, and I believe it was Maywood 
uh, or Melrose Park in Illinois, something like that, they had made a fatal flaw by taking him to a friend's house and saying, hey, can you watch this uh, boy? His mom was killed in a drug deal gone bad, and we're trying to get help, and you know, uh, Annette's about to give birth. So they went through all of this nonsense but left him there, and he began to talk about everything that he'd seen. And the family he was left with were terrified. So they didn't know what to do. They didn't, certainly didn't want to put themselves in the crosshairs now. So they waited, and when they came to pick Josh up, ended up driving away with him and stabbing him and throwing him in a, in a garbage dumpster. That came back to bite him in a big way because they made his story to this family admissible in court. That really helped to seal the deal for them. But they did find all three of them. They found blood-soaked outfits and items. They found the baby on them, everything. This was kind of a a baptism by fire into the you know world of real true crime and it was it was horrifying and to think that there's one person out there you know you hear about these serial killers and yeah. sometimes these one-off killers and you think what happened in your brain what made this okay for you that's hard enough to wrap your head around and then you hear about the Bonnie and Clydes the you know the Starkweathers who who partner up with somebody and you think okay well it's a man and a woman, a relationship, and maybe they're just broken enough that this makes sense. But now you've got three, and there's possibly a fourth person involved in the story that they were never able to corroborate. Joshua had said who was involved and referred to another person as Boo Boo, I believe. But they could never figure out who that was or what had happened, who, you know, who that other person was. And they were all put in and they were actually given the death penalty and outgoing governor ryan decided to commute all of the death penalties to life in prison without you know parole which i understand and that's because there were so many more cases that were popping up of you know dna exonerating people that that weren't guilty of these crimes mm -hmm. so i understand why he did that and he did it in a blanket way what what breaks me my heart about it is you know you, you look and two of them are on inmate dating sites so you know they're allowed to live this you know although incarcerated life they're they're reaching out and trying to have relationships with people and, and it's allowable which i don't understand but this brutal murder and multiple murders took place and these three people came together to create this scenario do this horrible deed and just thought they were going to walk away I, I i couldn't understand that concept so i started reading everything i could mm -hmm. on true crime and killers and why they would do this and you know we're, we're led to believe that there are profilers who put together these packages and at first you know we used to hear they're the bedwetters and the fire starters and they abuse animals and we found that a lot of that isn't even true anymore that's that was kind of a generic base at first and now they're starting to find that a lot of these killers led regular lives sometimes they're hyper intelligent they're not remedial in, in intelligence just kind of reading into these things and, and educating myself it really helped to kind of help me try to transition and process this heinous crime that had happened in my life. So that's, that was kind of my indoctrination into the real world of true crime. And, and like you said, Dave, I mean, that's just a horrific story, even just involving the light-skinned baby. It's just insane. But there is a lot of, I don't know why, but it's definitely in the same ballpark as, as paranormal stories. Um, obviously, this is real. Paranormal is, is, is people are subjective to it. But there's so much kind of a crossover there. And I want to hear more of the stories that, that fascinate you, but I also want to ask something that you mentioned earlier when you said vampire killers and people who think they're werewolves. What, what is that all about? Yeah, there, you'd be amazed if you start doing some research online. You know, to kind of kick it off, what inspired me on that was the story a few years ago from Wisconsin where the two girls 
had decided to sacrifice their friend to Slenderman. Right. And for people that aren't familiar, Slenderman is an internet meme character that was basically created or believed to be created for an online contest to try to fool paranormal investigators. Could you create a story and backstory and imagery enough to, you know, fool people? And this gentleman came out and created this character known as Slenderman, who was tall, lanky, you couldn't see a face, who was often in the company of children you would see him. And sometimes he's got these spider-like legs that would unfold from his back. And these girls were very intrigued by the history and story of Slenderman, and they took it to an unbelievable level when they decided to murder one of their friends on a sleepover in order to gain entry to Slender Man's world. Hmm. To us, rationally, that just sounds completely insane. And here again, you've got not just one, but two children who think, yeah, this makes sense. Right. And that in itself is is unbelievable. But then they go through all of this and, and talk about the, the case and why they did this. And they, brut- they, they took this girl, brutally stabbed her and left her for dead. She, this girl survived and crawled out of the woods and was able to get help and is alive today. Thank God. Really? Wow. Yes. Yeah. yeah. And then... There was a spate of these weird murders. There was another guy who tried to kill his mother and burn the house down that was doing it in honor of Slenderman. And we start looking at these things called tulpas in the paranormal world, these thought forms. If we think about something enough, can we create it? And you know this, right? I mean, creative visualization, a lot of sports people will use that. You see yourself winning. You see yourself hitting that home run or, or getting the touchdown or, or uh, you know, winning a title belt. Well, you know, any one of those type of things. You, you, you process this. You put this out to the universe, and it brings it to it. Well, the idea is, too, with tulpas in the paranormal world, if we think about something, can we actually create these? beings. And what I found fascinating as we started kind of looking back at the idea of what Slender Man was, it was believed he was created as this internet meme, and that's what those guys told us. However, there are versions of Slender Man that have appeared for centuries mm. in different religions and cultures, and they're all very similar in the storyline. Sometimes they're, uh, you know, dressed in different outfits, but usually they're very tall, lanky, no face, no structural features. In the vein of Mothman, they appear and seemed to be a precursor to something really evil and wicked coming. So that was what started my research even deeper into some of these weird crimes that had paranormal slant. But you've got the Red Barn Ghost, this guy in England, uh, and you know he convinced his, his uh, girlfriend, I guess she was pregnant, let's run away together, You know, meet me at the Red Barn, we're going to take off, we're going to get out of here. She was very close with her family, but you know was in a, in a way back in the day that just wasn't acceptable. So... She shows up, he murders her, and hides her body in this red barn, and then takes off and goes around touring through Europe, sending cards and letters saying she doesn't want anything to do with you anymore and your family, but I'm just letting you know she's okay, everything's fine, I'm sorry, I don't know why she's like this. Well, the mother starts getting visits from the spirit of this ghost, her daughter, Hmm. and starts to tell her, I'm in the red barn. And the mother starts to kick this around. They actually go and investigate, and sure enough, in the red barn... They find the remains of her daughter. So you've got this interesting story that, you know, supposedly a ghost led this investigation to a close by telling where her body was located. Then, if that's not weird enough, and this this happens right in the United States, there's the Greenbrier ghost. They actually have a sign right there that says Greenbrier, home of the Greenbrier ghost. It's the only ghost story, I guess, uh, you know, ghost account that was found admissible in a court of law. Hmm. And this guy uh, had married, was very abusive to this woman. She uh, died suddenly. They said, he said she died during childbirth. Nobody in her family knew she was pregnant. There was no 
proof that she had been pregnant. He was very guarded about letting people near her during the wake. There was a scarf tied around her neck, although she never wore a scarf. And it was just a very weird situation. And he was so adamant about keeping people away from the corpse in the coffin. So after a few weeks of this, the mother started being visited by the daughter who explained that they, he had been very violent and had, th- I believe, thrown her down a flight of stairs, breaking her neck. It was enough for the mother to go back to the police, tell them what happened. They exhume the body, pull off the scarf. Sure enough, the neck's been broken. They find everything they need to. So that's where I said, sometimes you get these crossover stories where there's a little twist to the supernatural involved. Right. Now in Canada, quite a few years ago, I think like within the last 10 years, there was a young lady, and the names are protected. I'm sure if you look them up online, you can find them, but Canada has it right when it comes to court and, and how to deal with criminals. They don't publicize the names, and especially if it's a child, you never know about this stuff. You, it's all kept out of the courts so that they can get fair and just trials. But this girl and her boyfriend, who was older than her, uh, she believed she was a vampire. They were part of this weird coven. He believed he was like a 400-year-old werewolf. And they murdered her family. So hmm. she is the youngest serial killer on file in Canada. You know, I said that that's, again, now, obviously, there's some mental issues at play here. And you start to hear these kind of cases that are going around. But, you know, again, it's got that weird paranormal twist to it. Um, and for the Greenbrier, that's West Virginia, just so I mentioned, and that's from 1897. But just let me ask a question. So, so, so yeah. when, when they think he's a werewolf, what does that mean? What, like, what is he every every month on the full moon he thinks that he turns into a wolf or what's the deal you'd be surprised how many people actually believe that that Hmm. that there is something to the lycanthropy or the change and and you know a lot of people also buy into the fact that it's a mental illness but even going back into the native american tribes they believe that they would absorb the essence or or have this essence of their animal their totem animal and that they could change into these it doesn't always mean physically but it was more of a mental thing and you know, again, I think these two were just kind of weird Twilight fans who believed that they were right. vampires and, and werewolves because right, it was right. a sexy thing. So if you believe, if if you believe you're a vampire, are you actually trying to drink blood as well? Yes, yeah, there are these covens where they will go drink blood, and they have um, familiars. They have these humans that are willing to give the blood. And believe it or not, you wow. see it in a lot of the TV shows. There's that Midnight uh, Texas TV show, which I really enjoy. That's on TV right now. But they, you know, they had a coven of vampires that just visited, if that's the right term I'm using, at a clutch of vampires. I don't know what the <laughs> gaggle. proper terminology. <laughs> yeah, a gaggle of vampires. Right. Uh, maybe gurgle would be better. But, um, <laughs> you know, they usually find some willing participant who's willing to give blood. Wow. <laughs> yeah. You know, and then you've got some of these reincarnation stories of murder. You know, there's there's been a few really well-documented cases where... A kid just keeps talking about his family in, in some neighboring village, and they actually take him over there like, you've never been there. You're, you're eight years old, nine years old. You've never been to this village. He goes to the village, walks through, knows who everybody is, addresses who his, his wife used to be, then addresses who murdered him, and that was enough to get this guy tried. And sure enough, they found the body. They found out that this guy was the murderer, and this kid had come back all these years later to solve his own death. Wow. That's yeah, and that, that's what I said. A lot of it's really fascinating to me that you can find that kind of information and, <laughs> you know, that it's out there and, and it's not just twisted cases. Mm-hmm. Then we've got, there was a Ouija board session on November 8th in, uh, I think it was 1933 in Prescott, Arizona. A 15-year-old by the name of Maddie Turley fired a shotgun at her father, Ernest Turley, inflicting mortal wounds. She'd shot him, she said, because the board 
could not be denied. She eventually pled guilty to attempted murder and was sentenced to a state reformatory where she received parole three years later. So here's that's one of the very first cases of murder by Ouija where it was telling her to do this heinous crime. Now, oh, wow. The weird thing about it is she did the Ouija with her mother. Her mother was the one operating the planchette during the seance, <laughs> and the Ouija board told Maddie to shoot Daddy after he milked the cows and assured her no one would discover the murder. And allegedly, Dorothea, the mom, told Maddie she wanted to marry a handsome cowboy and get rid of Ernest Turley, and this was just the easiest solution. So Maddie and her mother used a deck of playing cards to apparently confirm the command, and then the teenager went out and shot her father in the back, and he died later at the hospital. So you've got, you know, again, now in this kind of case, obviously the mom is using the daughter because the daughter is going to get a much less uh, sentence for d- carrying out this murder. And the mother can deny and, and say she, she doesn't know anything about what was going on with this. But there's a, there's a case where you're, in, you know, involving the supernatural. Mm-hmm. Right, right. Like, I love how the mother was controlling the plancha. So oh, yeah. It's like, okay, you must kill your father. <laughs> what other um, uh, stories really fascinate you, Dave? And that have really, uh, well, unfortunately, like I said, I've had it touch my life a couple yeah. of times. Oh, yeah, you said the a couple, newest, yeah. newest one was just a few years ago. I was actually on a trip in, I believe it was uh, Scotland or Ireland at the time when we got the news. And as part of the paranormal world, we come into contact with a lot of really interesting and fun people. And uh, as a long mainstay of our shows, we do these live events where we'd go all over the United States, Eastern State Penitentiary, Waverly Hills Sanitarium, uh, the Stanley Hotel, the Queen Mary, all of these great haunted locations. And we would bring celebrities from the different paranormal TV shows and, you know, uh, authorities and speakers on things like Bigfoot, Lauren Coleman would join us or Dr. Barry Taff. And you'd always have all of these great guests to, to join in and chat with and Mark and Debbie Constantino were brought to my attention by my friend out of, out of uh, Reno, Janice Oberding, who's a big investigator and author on the paranormal. She said, you have to meet these two. They are very proficient at getting recordings of the dead, EVP, electronic voice phenomena. Mm-hmm. So they came on out to our Stanley Hotel event, and they were set up in one of the areas to lead a ghost hunt during the night, and people were blown away. As a matter of fact, most of the time, the, the guests would come and want to hang out with the TV celebrities. But because these two were getting so many recorded voices while you're standing there watching it, they never wanted to leave. So these two became celebrities unto themselves, and their names were Mark and Debbie Constantino. Mm-hmm. And they, they had this interesting shtick. They were very much the Bickersons. They were very sweet and loving to all of us and, and very nice people. But they always, you know, they had this kind of New York sensibility where they just said what they felt. They, they you know, were kind of brash with one another and they realized that it kind of worked for their shtick, for their, you know, uh, public persona. So there was always this kind of weird little infighting between the two of them or disagreements. And over the years, and they worked with me for, I think, eight years doing these live events, things started to get more and more heated Mm -hmm. and just strange outbursts. And people started to wonder, is this the influence of the paranormal? Because they're constantly in contact with the dead or what we believe is the dead, are they maybe possessed or demon pushed? And I, I'd seen Debbie on numerous occasions react, and uh, I got to watch this line very carefully because I, I know that this is still a very touchy subject for a lot of the people. But Debbie was a very slight woman, very small, very skinny in stature. I mean, just a very slight woman. And Mark was a big guy, built kind of like me. Okay, mm-hmm. um, 
And Debbie was very violent with him on numerous occasions in front of us. I mean, I remember one time at the Washoe Club in Virginia City, she got mad at him and just crushed her cigarette out in his face <laughs> while she'd been drinking. <laughs> and he always remained calm about this, which um, astounded me. That This guy was so calm. She would hit him. She would put cigarettes out on his face, call him every name in the book. And he'd always be like, come on, Deb, just knock it off. Come on, come on, Deb, stop it. And he was always very calm, which, again, was really an interesting deal. Things continued to escalate. About two years ago, uh, they had decided to <laughs> divorce. Deb moved out, and that caused these waves. And I'd been talking to a few of our friends in the paranormal field, and I said, I got a bad feeling things are not going to go well. And they're like, no, no, I think this is the best thing. They're finally apart, this, this negativity, this anger. And then things started to surface that they were basically abusing each other for all this time, and one or the other was always getting the other one arrested for physical abuse, but then they would never go to court to finish the, uh, you know, the deal and get the person put away. So then they'd re they dropped the charges. Mm -hmm. Well, in this last case, Mark and his daughter went to go get Debbie from her friends, uh, or I guess it had told Debbie her dogs ran away, so Debbie and her friend came over to the house where Mark and his daughter dragged them allegedly out of their car, beat them up pretty rough, almost choked Debbie to death, and the police were involved. So Mark and his, his daughter were put away for this and uh, put in jail for a while. And again, we were talking and, you know, amongst our group. We're like, you know, it's sad that we're really not surprised about this. Right. But it went from like a, a kind of a funny shtick of watching these two bicker, and it was, it was funny the way they do it, but you never questioned that these two loved each other very much. That was the weird part. Mm-hmm. But I said, I, I have a bad feeling about this, that if he gets out, I, I have a feeling they're going to both be dead in about 60 days. And he said, no, I don't think it's going to go that far to you. And I said, yeah, I, I really got a bad feeling this time. And I took off to go do our trip. And I, like I said, I can't remember if it was Ireland or Scotland. Um, and we were a couple days into the trip. And uh, we'd just come back from this really fun ghost tour. Everybody had had a great time laughing and having fun and got back to my hotel room and one of the... Uh, guests that was part of our event called me and said, Dave, Mark killed Debbie tonight and then killed himself. Wow. And I was blown away. Uh, what? You know, I knew it was coming, but it was still one of those things. It's like watching a car accident. You see it coming in slow motion, but you know, there's nothing you can do. Right. And what had happened, she had moved out. He actually went over to the house to get her and shot the man. Uh, she was living with two people, a woman and a man. He shot the man to death then dragged Debbie back to their daughter's apartment while the daughter was gone. She had, I guess, police got involved in this. They had surrounded the building, and he, he said, just let me think this through, or I'm going to kill her. Just leave me alone. Let me think about this. And they kept trying to communicate, and at one point they heard gunshots, and they finally burst in, and he had already murdered Debbie and then killed himself. Mm. So then it rose, you know, oh, well, it was obviously demonic possession or, or spiritual influence. And I don't think so. I think it was just the mental illness of two people that were very charismatic and very powerful between the two of them. And things got out of control. They were both very possessive of one another. They were sweet people. And I, I choose to remember not the murderer that he was or the abusive spouse she was. And I know there are just as many stories from behind the scenes that Mark was as abusive, I can just say what I'd seen in, in public was I never saw him raise a voice or a hand to his wife ever. Yeah. As a matter of fact, he always walked away from it when it got ugly. But mm -hmm. I understand that that was behind the scenes and, and there were things we didn't see. We watched this whole thing kind of go down and it was, it was just tragic to watch this happen as somebody that you, you love and care about. I like to think about the fact that they, they gave a lot. They did 
charity work with us all the time. We would do these live events, and then we would do these special late-night ghost hunts where people would donate money, you know, sometimes hundreds or thousands of dollars to go on a private investigation with Mark and Debbie. Mm. And uh, they would give all that money to Shriners Children's Hospital, Haven House, the Battered Woman Shelter in Los Angeles, you know, animal rescues, whatever we were raising money for at that time. And that that's what I choose to remember about these two. But, uh, you know, it was, it was definitely a, a tragedy that really kind of uh, catapulted itself into our paranormal world and, and shook a lot of people when it happened. But that's the thing. Like, I've been you know, akin to that myself with the, with the Chris Benoit murders. I'm sure you remember right. that, where Chris yeah. killed not only his wife and then his son and then himself. And, and you wonder because, you know, the best guy in the world, super cool. And, and if I had to leave my kids with somebody, I would think about leaving them with him. And then something like that happens where you're like, how can a person be so capable of doing these horrific uh, abominable crimes when they're so mild-mannered, friendly, polite, uh, trustworthy, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, every other time of their life. You know what's fascinating about Chris's story fits another story, and I think may be the answer in those cases. Because if I remember correctly, he wasn't didn't his father donate his brain to be tested and understood after the fact? Yes. He showed that he had a lot of trauma, brain trauma, from the years of of uh, sports that he had been involved yeah, in. Yeah, had the CTE problems that uh, you find a lot of athletes are having now. Right. And now, you know, it's real easy for people out in the world to dismiss that this is a reality. A lot of people don't know that head trauma can cause rage issues. Mm-hmm. And you don't even realize you've, if you've had a concussion or two, that can cause rage issues. It has nothing to do with steroids. It has nothing to do with right. drugs. It, it, and it can fire off in an instant. And Chris, unfortunately, had sustained quite a bit of that in the brain. Well, there's another case, and uh, I'm struggling right now to remember his name, but he's known as the reluctant serial killer. He was just a great guy overall, but he sustained a head injury. And then he would go into these weird modes where he would murder. And it wasn't his personality. It wasn't him. And the courts realized that, you know, that these, these brain injuries can bring out a totally different perspective and aspect of your personality. So... That's why he's referred to as the, uh, you know, reluctant serial killer. He, <laughs> he has the remorse. It's not like he's broken and completely socially inept. He he's able to understand what happened. But we're, that's why I want to get a little bit more into his story. Today's episode of the Paranormal Sixty is brought to you by. Today's episode is brought to you by BetterHelp. What's the first thing that you'd do if, say, you had an extra hour in your day? Would you go for a run? Maybe take a nap? Read a book? Or just show up for a friend. A lot of us spend our lives wishing we had more time. And the question is, time for what? If time was unlimited, how would you use it? The best way to squeeze that special thing into your schedule is to know what's important to you and make it a priority. Therapy can help you find what matters to you so you can do more of it. If you're like me, you think, I can get through a lot. And we can. We're a resilient species. However... There are times that we need to reach out that hand and get a little help from somewhere else. That's what I did with BetterHelp. When I reached that limit and I realized things were getting a little bit out of control, instead of taking it out on my family or taking it out on myself, I just decided to reach out and get the help that I deserve. So if you're thinking of starting therapy, give BetterHelp a try. It's entirely online and it's designed to be convenient, flexible, and suited to your schedule. Just fill out a brief questionnaire to get matched with a licensed therapist and switch therapists at any time for no additional charge. 
Learn to make time for what makes you happy, my darklings. Get BetterHelp. Visit BetterHelp.com slash P60. Do that today. You're going to get 10% off your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P dot com slash P60. It's time to take control of your life. Dave's here rooting you on, and if I can do this, you can do this. Let's do this together. BetterHelp.com slash P60. There's a link for it on today's program guide. Chris, I don't know if you know this, but it's like unbelievable how many people they believe in every state. Like, it's believed that there could be upwards to 200 people that are incarcerated that are innocent. Really? That they've been put in for. Yeah, 200. Think about that. Wow. And it could be higher. That's just the one that they believe they know about. Up to 200 people per state are incarcerated for crimes they did not commit. And that's because, the, the listen, I love America, I love our criminal justice system, but it is flawed and broken. Prosecutors and defense counsels are not worried about finding justice, they're worried about winning. Mm-hmm. And that's a very scary aspect of, of real true crime. So here's a quick tip that I've talked to every attorney, both sides have given to me. If you are ever approached by the police regarding any matter to do with a violent crime, do not speak. Do not give admission and you think, hey, I have nothing to hide. I'm not guilty. I'll just talk. Don't do it. Ask for an attorney. Why is that? And, you know, and, and when you think of that, Chris, right, what's the first thing that come to mind? Oh, sure. Schrader gets pulled in and asks for an attorney. He must be guilty, mm-hmm. right? It's because when you give up the rights and you say, hey, I'm, listen, I'm Chris Jericho. I'm a good guy. I raise money for charities. I have nothing to hide. They get you behind closed doors. And they start browbeating you. And in some cases, some of these people start almost believing right. what they're hearing from the prosecution, or not prosecution, but from the uh, cross-examiners there at the police station. And they're in there sometimes for hours, eight, nine hours, breaking this person down, where it gets to the point that some of these people are just like, okay, I did it, I did it. Can we just end this? Yes. You know? or, or they're told, listen, if you tell me about this, we can go really easy on you. You're not going to get the death penalty. You'll probably be out in a couple of years, but we have enough to nail you. And people fold. You have to ask for an attorney. Mm-hmm. And even if you can't afford an attorney, they have attorneys that will help you. But it's frightening how many of these defense attorneys that are, are city and county appointed to you are totally inept and unable to really do the good job. And that was kind of shown to us with the Stephen Avery case and making right. a murderer, right? And, and you see more and more cases like this. One that's really terrifying, and, and Tommy Lynn Sells was a brutal serial killer, horrible guy. And as a matter of fact, when we did the interview about him, he was just about to be put to death. And that was back in April of 2014, I believe. I think we spoke to the author of the book in, I think, March, because his death date was coming up relatively quickly. Here's what's really strange. This author who met with him, repeatedly and got his confidence and and heard these stories he would brag to her of these murders that he committed that hadn't been attached to him as a matter of fact he gave up enough information about one murder that the author was able to take it to the police and they imagine this chris not only do you lose one of your children to a brutal murder but they arrest you for it wow And you go to prison for the murder of your child. So you've lost your child, you've lost your innocence, you've lost your freedom, and you're put in prison. And and I want to say it was almost 15 to 20 years this woman was sitting in jail before they were able to exonerate her. And that's because Tommy Lynn Sells admitted to it 
to this author and they got this woman out of jail. How can and that even said, happen? That's so insane. And they didn't see, and this is what terrifies the living hell out of me. They didn't see the importance of keeping this man alive longer. Right. He didn't want to die. So I don't know why we don't cut a deal with, with and, and listen, you know, for a long time, because of what happened to my friend, Deb, I was an eye for an eye kind of guy. And if you're going to murder somebody in cold blood and kill their children, the minute that gavel hit the ground and said guilty, they should have walked them out back and put a bullet in their head. That was my thought for a long time. Right. Because I just don't see keeping somebody in society that has that kind of nature. I've softened to that a little bit as I've understood from different people and, and crimes. And I understand eye for an eye is not always the way to go. But in this case, this guy wanted to, you know, stay alive. If they would have said, all right, listen, you give us two leads. If we can find either one of these bodies and prove that you're attached to it, we'll extend your life by 18 months. Right. So for every two leads you give us that, that flesh out, and the reason you say they've got to flesh out is because a lot of people like Bundy, in order to save his ass at the end, he got out there and he said, oh, I got all these other kids. I can help you solve crimes. He was trying to be the Hannibal Lecter. Right. But he was also full of BS in a lot of cases. And they would go on wild goose chases and not find what he said was taking place. So, but Tommy Linsells was a different kind of character. And I said, how can we put him to death knowing that there are people on death row for murdering somebody, sometimes family members, and they are not guilty, but to the law. And this is the terrifying part, Chris. You can put me in a room full of demons, witches, ghosts, and goblins. That doesn't terrify me half as much as in the eyes of the law, but we got him for the crimes that we got him for. Let's just put him to death. Right. To hell with justice for all the other victims. To hell with justice on all these other cases. Let's just get rid of him. Then yeah. we don't have to worry about Tommy Lynn Sells anymore. Wow. And that is what I don't understand. And there are serial killers like that today that still live that have given some cases enough to keep themselves out of the death penalty. But I, I think if we can use that and we can solve these crimes, it's an important thing to do. And we really need to get this done. We've become such a snowflake society, and I don't like to use the cliche, but everybody's so worried about their rights that they're not worried about doing what's right. Mm -hmm. I don't see the problem with everybody giving a little bit of uh, DNA so we can solve these crimes quicker. We can get this information done. It's not a violation of our privacy. It's a way to crack these crimes and maybe save lives because had they had the DNA from some of these guys, they may have been able to stop multiple rapes and murders on women and men for years. But people are so, oh, that's, I don't want to give my blood. I don't want to give a cheek scraping. Well, you know, I don't understand that philosophy. Let's stop crime where we can. And if we have these DNA kits in place that we can plug them in, boom, there are thousands of rape and murder DNA kits sitting untested because there's just not enough money, Chris. There are yeah. people sitting in jail and in prison for crimes they didn't commit because there's just not enough money to run all of those kits. And listen, we have new crimes to worry about. Let's not try to exonerate Chris Jericho from a crime 20 years ago. He's already in jail. Let's just worry about the new crime. Right. Well, how would you feel if you're that guy sitting there going, but wait a minute, you have a kit that you can run that might get me out of jail? Talk is Jericho. Well, then what did you think of that you mentioned making a murder in Stephen Avery? What did you think of that? Because that was unbelievable when you watched that show. And obviously, they're showing it from one side of the coin. They want people to think that he's completely innocent. Is that is that the case? Have you looked into that uh, into that crime at all? 
we actually we looked into that crime before the Netflix series mm, had aired. Right. Uh, we spoke with Michael Griesbach about it, and it was fascinating. In, in, in his opinion, the first crime was completely trumped up. He believes that that uh, Stephen Avery was guilty of the second crime. The second I crime of the, the, the murder of, uh, of the photographer? Right. But I, I still, you know what, and, and some of it is very interesting, uh, to say the least. And, you know, his nephew, who has a very low IQ and yeah, Brandon, was easily Brandon. manipulated. Yeah, Brandon Dassey, uh, he was easily manipulated, but he, he made all of these claims. Now, this is the interesting part. They put Stephen Avery away without Brendan Dassey's testimony. Hmm. Okay. Right. So they didn't use Brendan Dassey to put Stephen Avery away. They had enough that they believe Stephen Avery was the criminal for that crime. But then you've got Brendan Dassey who says, oh yeah, she was chained or handcuffed to a bed. She was brutally murdered. And there's no proof. There's no DNA. You don't even see scratches on the headboard from where she would have been chained. And who wouldn't have been handcuffed, have been trying to work their wrists out of that or try to break the headboard to get it out when they were left alone in that room. Mm -hmm. And there's no marks. There's no Mars. There's no blood splatter. That to me seems very strange when you look at this crime, because there is the the scary part of this story is there's nobody clean in this story. Mm. I mean, there's no doubt Avery and Dacier are goofy guys and that they're probably not totally clean of crimes and, and bad situations, but are they guilty of murder? But tell me why a man who's about to get a multi-million dollar payoff would give it all up by murdering another woman. Right, 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 yeah. It, it, that makes no sense. Now, you can say, well, obviously, he's, he's mentally deficient, and I don't know how mentally deficient you are that you're about to get paid and you're going to do something to mess it up. I'm pretty sure he wouldn't have. But, again, I mean, I know, like you said, that the documentary is slanted one way, but there's still so many other news articles coming out that, that shed light on different aspects of this story that it's pretty hard to just say definitively this guy did it. And they're, they're still working behind the scenes to get Dassey out and Avery out. And I think that that case and the fact that they raised that information and, and that there are still some things to look at means that we need to almost retry that case in a totally different state where we no longer have the political ties and sheriffs and judges and people that are still sitting or in power that have influence over keeping this guy in jail. Because... Chris, if they exonerate this guy again and find out that this was BS, the state of Wisconsin is going to be changed to the name of uh, Avery, right? It'll just be, uh, you've got Illinois right next to the state of Avery. <laughs> this guy's going to own that state. So, but, but, no, but when, no you're, sands or butts. when you're talking to, to Michael, what you say his name was Michael? Griesbach. The, and he is the attorney? Or who is he? Yeah, he was he was one of the attorneys, prosecuting attorneys, I believe, out there. So he thinks, um, he thinks that, that, that the first crime, which was the, the rape... That he did right. it, but the second crime of the murder he did not do. No, no, no. He Sorry, vice versa. The first crime was trumped up, that the rape was not his. He believes okay. that wholeheartedly. He believes, though, that Avery did do the murder. Wow, okay. And Yeah, it just, and, and I mean, listen, there is some damning points. Her, her car is on his property in the junkyard. Mm-hmm. There are some weird points to it, but there's no DNA linking it, and then they just happen to find one shell casing in the garage, and that's enough to put him away. I don't know, man. It's it's an icky situation all the way around. I, I just don't believe that true justice is going to be served in this case because, like I said, when you go through it step by step, and I'll be happy to give you the guy's name we just talked to, and I don't remember it off the top of my head, but he talks about the political motivation behind this case. 
And what's and, that? Uh, what's the political motivation? Just, just all of the people behind the scenes who are in positions of power that don't want the truth to come out on the story. And it doesn't, it's not conspiratorial, but you realize that when this peg is removed from this house of cards, there's a lot that's going to collapse real mm. fast. Right, right, right. And, right. and, and I think that's going to cause, you know, waves. That's why I said I believe this guy's going to own the state of, of uh, mm-hmm. Wisconsin if he is ever exonerated. Now, they might get away with it with the Alford plea like they used for the West Memphis Three, where they'll tell him, all right, listen, we'll let you out, but you're going to sign this that says you sure. can't come after us for money. You can't do it, but we'll give you your freedom back. And, you know, we, we covered the West Memphis Three case uh, quite a bit on our show in the past, and that was a case that fascinated me as well. And I will tell you this. There is a gentleman that I firmly believe is the murderer. And I've talked off the record and off air with a few people that are involved in an ongoing investigation on this guy. And there is a death toll following him that people have not put together yet. A death they toll? Yeah, meaning that there have been other mysterious deaths surrounding this guy. Wow. And it has nothing to do with the three guys, Jesse Miss Kelly and Damian Eccles and uh, Jason Baldwin. has nothing to do with them. They were on trumped-up charges. And, you know, a lot of people are still hung up on the, no, they did it. Look at the way Damien acted. Listen, if you're a smug, and I was a smug teenager, if you know you're innocent of something and you just think this is a big joke and there's no way they're going to put you away, I could see being, and, and he's an egotistical kid. Mm-hmm. I could see him just rolling his eyes and kind of laughing about it and, you know, monkeying up to the cameras because, in his opinion, there was no way he was going to be found guilty of this crime. Well, not to mention they're teenagers, too. We're talking about the West Memphis Three, which is the three teenagers right. who were, who were uh, accused of murdering one kid or no, two? No, three little, three little boys. Three little boys, and they were in jail for years, what, 20 years or so, something like that, and they yeah. finally got out, but they had to sign a paper that said that they had basically done it, but they wouldn't, you know, whatever it was, to, to save face. But when you're talking about teenage kids, it's like they might be so nervous they might not know what else to do. You know, like, oh, yeah, well, 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 I didn't do it. Well, screw you type thing, you know? Well, and they got Jesse Miss Kelly, the the weak link of the three. And I don't mean that disrespectfully, Jesse, uh, because, you know, that's hurtful to say. But he was the kid that had... um, He wasn't as smart. He was slow, right? Right. His mental mental acuity was much uh, less and easily compromised. But for God's sakes, Jason Baldwin, they have proof that he wasn't anywhere near it and that he was at, like, I think a school function or a basketball game or something. They, they have proof on these guys that they weren't there, but they, what they did was J, J, um, Jesse Miss Kelly did not have representation while they questioned him, and they broke him down for hours. Right. The video is, is telling, and you know they, they break this kid down, and basically they're telling him, listen, we already know what happened, so if you just confirm this for us, and they lead him through this sure. admission. And that's horrific. And for, you know th- that was another case where they knew that they screwed up this case in a huge way. That's why they offered this Alford plea. And Jason Baldwin did not want to sign the Alford plea, but they all three had to do it in order to get uh, Damian Eccles off the death. You know, he was he was going to be put to death. Yeah, he was. I was on death row for being the ringleader. Right. And Baldwin did the right thing and stepped up. And well, I shouldn't say he did the right thing. He did the thing to save his friend. And he firmly believes that they were all screwed and they gave up a huge portion of their life for this and they have nothing to get back for it. You know, there's always going to be that stigma of, sure, of course. crime associated, even though 
Most of the world believes they're innocent. I mean, boy, you talk about a turnout. They had every celebrity under the sun in their case trying to help them out. Uh, Peter Jackson, uh, Seth Rollins, uh, Johnny Depp. Johnny Depp, yeah. A few big shirts. So, it's, it's funny. I hosted, I hosted an award show a few years ago, and Johnny Depp was played play guitar with Marilyn Manson on the show. And Damien Eccles was there because um, he was a big heavy metal fan. And after the show, I'm the host. I, I couldn't get into the room to hang out with Johnny Depp and Damien Eccles. I wasn't a big enough name to get into the room. I'm like, but I hosted the show. They're like, nope, this is only for like the top guys, including Damien Eccles. I have full confidence that the truth of that case still exists out there, and I believe that they're getting closer and closer to really solving it. So when you think that that case is just being left dangling, it's not. There are people well, yeah, you, behind the scenes. You watch the movies for it, and I think it was The Stepfather or something like that was that was involved, or there's a lot of, once again, suspects that are much more obvious than the kids. But I think right. what you said, though, Dave, is, is something that's it's very terrifying um, in that there's a lot of politics involved to where, okay, we know that Eccles is innocent. We know that Stephen Avery is innocent, but we have to leave them in jail because if not, we look bad. And let's just leave them in there rather than bring them out because it's going to make the whole state look bad and make us all look like idiots. Like you said, if that happens, he would own the whole state. So if, I, if I'm uh, you know, in charge of, of the justice system right. of Wisconsin, I don't want Stephen Avery to get out, even if he is completely innocent, because that makes me look bad. Yeah, so watch for that Alfred plea. If if he ever gets out, I don't see it any other way than yeah. an Alfred plea, unless it's his ego in the way saying, I don't want the Alfred plea, I just want to go back to court. Then I think Stephen Avery's a dead man, in, in true opinion. Sure. Um, you know, but there are, there are other cases like this. We did a show that fascinated the hell out of me. There was a soccer coach, black soccer coach from a foreign country living here, and he was railroaded for the murder of, of a woman's son. And it's it's a tragic story, but what's really scary about the whole thing is the police only focused on this one guy, period. That's all they focused on. Well, he had a key, he had access, and he had broken up with this woman, and they had had some issues in the past. Okay, that was enough. Well, they lived in a very affluent neighborhood, and black people in that neighborhood were just not seen. It just didn't happen, and if they did, they stuck out. Nobody saw this guy. He has proof that he was other places. They, they claim that he had injured his leg jumping from the window, and they have video of him showing this, but there's no proof of this. And the story, and we actually, it was really nice. The, the attorneys and the people behind it said that they believe that presenting on our show helped get them cleared hmm. because it's bringing it out to the public and letting people know what's going on with this case. And, it, you know, they, when it was finally kind of cleared up for them, they came back on to thank us for the work that we did on our show. This was just crazy to me because this guy, and here's, here's the twist, her other ex-boyfriend, who also had motive and violent tendencies, is the policeman that was the investigator on the case. Wow. <laughs> so, See, again, go, I'm not right? saying he did it, but they refused to look at him as a potential. How do you look at him? Now, they found, uh, I believe it was pubic hair and blood. And it did not match. There is no DNA that puts this guy on the scene. There were fibers. There is nothing that matches this guy, not in any way, shape, or form as having been the criminal. But the prosecutors, and I think the district attorney that was running, or the, the person that was running for district attorney, used him as a linchpin. They're like, we're going to get this son of a bitch. We're going to bring him down because he did this. And that's, that was kind of the cornerstone of her getting into to, uh, court and, and, and getting the DA position. And it's terrifying that, again, it wasn't about justice. It's about winning. Yeah, exactly. And that's all 
they were focused on was winning at any cost, including the innocence of a man who's now in prison or was going to face prison for this. So there are still some, I think, still a couple of sticky ties out there that they're trying to get through. But for the most part, um, they've proven his innocence. There's nothing that puts this guy on the site. There's nothing that proves that he was there, and there's no DNA. However, they haven't tested the police officer who's the ex-boyfriend, and they refuse to. Hmm. Why? Yeah, right, right. Clear him. Clear him. Hey, let's, let's rub it in the faces of all the conspiratorial idiots then and say, look, okay, fine, here's the DNA test. Are you happy now? But why not run it? That seems really bizarre to me. Well, absolutely. And like I said, it becomes a political thing rather than, than, than a justice thing. And that's the scary because I think to me that that's, that's the worst nightmare of getting, you know, getting uh, put in jail for a crime that you didn't commit, right? Um, but you know, I, I, as, as we wind down here, Dave, I want you to tell me which, and this is not, maybe favorite isn't the best word because it's making it kind of sound trivial and, and, and light, but what is, what is the most fascinating true crime story that you, uh, that you've discovered over the last three, four, five years that you've been doing this show? That's like asking me who's my favorite kid. (laughs) On the week in the case, I mean, when we talked about the um, Stephen Avery case before it broke, and then we talked about it afterwards, what a great story. Mm-hmm. But I've been involved and wrapped up in the West Memphis Street case since it broke on HBO Films with the, uh, you know, the, the documentaries that they did. Right. Uh, and then, like I said, and again, I, I apologize. I'll try to get you the name so you can let your audience know in the future. But the guy we just spoke about that was the, the soccer coach that mm-hmm. was in trouble, um, You've got a, a myriad of these cases. Even here's one, our, our, one of our very first episodes. As a matter of fact, the first episode I ever did of Coast to Coast, I had Jeff Mudgett on our show. And Jeff is the great-great-grandson of H.H. H. Holmes, the devil in the White City, the uh, killer in, in uh, Chicago who built the murder castle. And Jeff what's, what's that? What's, what's the murder castle? castle? Tell us about that. Oh, my gosh. Uh, there's a series on history. And if you haven't seen it, check it out. It's called American Ripper. And it stars Jeff Mudgett and Amaryllis Fox. And they are, uh, Jeff's the great great grandson of H.H. H. Holmes. And Amaryllis Fox is an investigator and I believe former CIA investigator. And they look and break this case down. And it's chilling to hear these deals. But he was a genius and built this, what they call the murder castle, right downtown Chicago. It was a few blocks away from the uh, state fair, that, that World's Fair that took place there. Mm-hmm. It had false doors, it had trap doors, it had uh, body shoots, and this guy was experimenting on people, testing people, and, and brutally murdering people, and he left this wake of death in his path that you can't deny, and he was a con man from start to finish, and Jeff believes from information that he was able to uncover through the family that, his, that Holmes was also the Ripper, which again sounds, you know, Jack the Ripper, which sounds like it, it's a pretty big leap. But they make a pretty compelling statement because this guy was constantly embroiled in some con after another. And for the entire time of the Jack the Ripper files, this guy disappears. And there's absolutely no trace of him here in the United States. Hmm. But there is mention of him being in England at the time. So you see these tentative murders slowly building up and amping up. And the final one, Mary Jane Kelly, that's where he had her alone in the room. It wasn't out in some dark, dirty alley where he had to be quick. He, he took Mary Jane Kelly and slaughtered her, carved her up, and did horrific things, and then suddenly comes back, and the murder castle is built, a place where he can have all the time in the world. He would turn gas on in people's rooms to kill them. 
he was an opportunist, so he didn't want to go to fight them, but the doors would lock, the gas would go on in the rooms, they would fall asleep and never wake back up, and then he would do horrific things and then sell the bones or body parts to local hospitals. Really? So this, yeah, and he would take, oh yeah, uh, he would take um, life insurance policies on a lot of these people and just keep cashing them in. It's crazy what this guy got away with. This is in the now 1800s, I guess? Yeah, yeah, and it's it's a, a just a bizarre storyline. But you've got to, you know, it's on uh, it's on History Channel. It's called American Ripper. Uh, but there, you know, there's another really amazing doctor uh, named Francis Tumbletee, who was an American doctor, who's also suspected. And one thing that they do admit is they believe this was an American, and it wasn't a racial kind of thing by saying that. But it was just a lot of the way it happened. And Tumbletee looks a lot like the drawings that the Ripper of the Ripper and looks like photographs of H.H. H. Holmes as well. So both of them were there. Both of them were active. So it could have been these two guys out there and it could have been either one of them. But in a lot of the Ripper cases, he would remove internal organs, especially the uh, reproductive system organs. And guess what Francis Tumblety used to do? He used to have jars and he would show some of his friends these jars of uteruses and things that he had. And that's what was always being removed from these victims. So there's some really strange cases. So that one is really one that fascinates me. There are so many dark, twisted angles. And will we ever get an answer? Probably not because it's good to not know, because that's really good for um, speculation and for tourism, which is sad to say. Yeah, right. I'm still kind of stuck on the murder castle because that's something you see in a horror movie. You see that like in in Saw or whatever, and the thing that those places actually exists that's 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 yeah. scary. You know, it's creepy, man. It's, it's like I and said. He was building a second one too. It's, that's why I said, watch American Ripper on History. Yeah, yeah, yeah. History Channel. Is it a documentary it. or is it like a? Is it a? Is it? it, it it's a, I think it was an eight-part series. Okay, yeah, I have to check that out because oh, it, you'll it, love it. It's fascinating because it, it's it's just like when you talk about I don't know, like The Walking Dead, for example. The show. It's not about the zombies. It's about how evil the humans can be to each other. And that's what scares me, just how evil some people are in this world. It's, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, Dave. Great. I appreciate that. All right. <laughs> All right, Dave. Thanks, man. 